thank you that did come out. <laughs> uh, I was sort of surprised at Stephen Hermina's text in Matthew 2, 1 through 12 last night because that's what I'm going to talk about this morning, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And he took the very text. That I got. And I try not to tell anybody who comes up here and speaks, I don't try to tell them what to talk about. And yet Stephen stole my sermon. But we'll, we'll make do. <laughs> I still love him, maybe. Uh, but a couple of weeks back, we looked at Joseph, uh, Mary's Joseph, and we looked at his fears. And he had fears of taking Mary as his wife. And there was a lot of reasons for those fears. But God gave Joseph a peace. He calmed his fears and he did it through dreams. Scripture tells us that old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. I've never had a dream that made sense. If I ever had a dream that made sense, it would probably frighten me. I have snippets that make sense, but not a complete dream. But God uses dreams to guide and direct Joseph. Joseph, we're told he is a good man, a just man, and he's chosen by God to be the stepfather of Jesus. Now that, you might say, is a sort of heavy responsibility. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're going to teach my son, God's son, about the Jewish way of life. Uh, when I was 16, my mom remarried. She married a good and a just Christian man. It took several years for me to warm up to him. Because when you're 16, you think you've got a handle on everything. But as time passed, he and I became best of friends. I worked for him in his machine shop as a young man, and I, was, I actually learned a trade. And when he retired, he would come and work with me at my shop. I had a shop when I uh, got a little older, and he was a hardworking, knowledgeable man, and he could fix or repair any piece of heavy equipment that you would have in a shop. He amazed me. But Joseph, he's going to have a great influence on Jesus. He's going to teach Jesus the Jewish ways of life. He's going to teach him the Mosaic law. He's going to teach Jesus a trade. He's going to teach him to be a carpenter or a worker with wood. That's what it actually means. And all Jewish fathers at that time taught their son a hands-on trade. You would never uh, starve to death if you were a good Jewish uh, boy, because you were, you had a trade you could fall back on in hard times or, or good times. And this was done for all Jewish boys. The Apostle Paul, he was taught the trade of tent making by his father. And even today, Orthodox Jews teach their son 
a hands-on tree. Jesus was probably not truly a carpenter, but probably a wood carver. He probably carved wood because wood was very scarce in that part of Judea in Jesus' childhood. And how would you like to have an artifact or some, some little something that was carved by Jesus? Like a menorah. Jesus probably carved some menorahs. Or, or maybe a chair. I bet he, you know, made comfortable chairs. But let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he's still living there in Bethlehem when visitors come calling. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ child was to be born. For they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had uh, secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return, Return to Herod, they've departed for their own country another way. We have wise men, astrologers. Most likely they're from the Babylon, uh, Babylon area, of, you know, at least Persia, and they've traveled a great distance led by a star. These wise men and I'm certain of this after studying uh, a lot of passages. There was probably a lot more than three of them. But we, you know, the tradition says three wise men, six. And here's another thing they are from the East. In the East, you didn't travel on camels. So throw away all those Christmas cards that have the wise men, three of them, coming on camels. They probably were on horses, not camels. And uh, they were of wealth, and they had wealth with them, so they probably had their own military escort with them, plus all the servants. This was probably a very large group that came before Herod. And they'd been traveling for a long time. 
Uh, Stephen last night said two and a half years, and that's probably a good estimate as to how long they've been following this star to Jerusalem. And they arrived there in Jerusalem, and they're only five to six miles from Bethlehem. And the wise men have a question for the religious leaders uh, there of Jerusalem. Uh, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? This caravan of men from the east, men of wealth, seeking the king of the Jews. This question by the wise men immediately awakens King Herod, who is an Edomite, by the way, and he rules there in Judea. And it awakens him, and he is troubled along with all of Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem is troubled that this caravan of men from the east are there seeking the king born. Let me give you a little info on Herod. He was a giant of a man, stood about four feet, four inches. Don't you know he had the small man syndrome? <laughs> you know he had it. <laughs> Herod was known for his building uh, accomplishments, though. He built palaces. He built military fortresses. Uh, he even built entire cities. He built Masada, which was a fort-like structure on top of a mountain. Uh, he remodeled the Jerusalem Temple of the Jews. And he became legendary for his building powers. But Herod, he was cruel. He had a vicious side to him. In fact, he murdered his wife and three sons on the same evening. I guess he was afraid his sons would take his throne or something. But Caesar Augustus proclaimed, it is safer to be Herod's pig than his son. And Augustus was over Herod. But as Herod grew older, to give you a glimpse of what kind of person he was, when he's in his 70s, he ordered and he knew that he would soon die, he ordered 100 leading men of Jerusalem to be arrested. And he had them put in prison, and the, his instructions were, the moment I die, these 100 men are to be executed where Jerusalem will be filled with mourning and sorrow when I die. But once Herod died, they ignored the edict. <laughs> so it didn't come about. They ignored it. Well, he's dead. What's he going to do? But the decree by Herod just gives us that little snapshot of his character and what he was like. Although he is king of the Jews, he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. What is an Edomite? They're a descendant of Esau. And if you know anything about Jacob, father of the Jews, Esau, father of the Edomites, there is war, there is battle between them even unto this day. There is battle and war between Edomites and the Jews. And this definitely went on. But Herod is also the one who's going to order the slaughter of all the babies in Judea that are two years old 
and younger. He was ruthless. And he does this hoping to destroy what the wise men call king of the Jews. Herod has a secret meeting with the wise men, and he, he wants to know the time frame. When did you start following this star? When did this star first appear to you? And Herod tells the wise men, now you go keep looking for this king, this baby king, and bring back word to me when you find him where I can worship him also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the wise men, they leave Herod, and they're joyful and they're happy. When the star that they're followed, it now stands in place over Bethlehem which is only five to six miles away from Jerusalem. This mission, this trip by the wise men, is over. They have finally reached their destination, and they are excited. They are happy, and they're full of joy. And the star is so precise that it stands over the house where Jesus is. That's quite amazing. Joseph and Mary, they still live in Bethlehem. They probably lived there with relatives from when they were ordered to go to Bethlehem and uh, for the census that uh, was to be taken. And Jesus, at this time when the wise men arrived, he could be a little toddler. He could be uh, one to two years old. And the wise men, again, they're excited. Their trip has been finally accomplished. And they've traveled with this big entourage for at least two years to find this king. And the Jewish religious leaders and Herod, on the contrary, they're not even interested enough in who this new king will be to walk an afternoon's walk of six to seven miles at the most to try to find this new Jewish king that has been born, according to the wise men. Herod told the wise men, when you find the king, let me know. And the people, Jesus' Jewish fellow men, who should be the most excited, can't be bothered to even look for their new king. When you find them, bring word back to us. Herod could have sent out a group to try to find Jesus, but no, he, he's not interested in worshiping Jesus or giving honor to Jesus. And the parallels with this, I wish they weren't true, but here we are in 2016. At Christmas, the highest Christian holiday of the year this in Easter, right now, today. And there's some church, churches that are not even open today. We'll look around. Everybody's out of town. Everybody's traveled, you know. I, I don't fault, you know, anybody for traveling. Go see Grandma and whatever. Uh, but this is the high holiday of the Christian faith. Some churches are having shortened services where they can get out and get on with their gift giving from Santa Claus and so forth. But this star of Bethlehem 
happens to be exactly over where Joseph and Mary live. Don't you find that interesting? A star right over a home. Now, you could have seen this star. If it's truly a star, you could have seen it from Jerusalem. That's only five or six miles away. But the wise men and them following this star, it has great mystery to it. Now, I'm going to give you what I think it's all about. In the book of Revelation, what we read is our scripture reading, 120, stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I have read different articles, some lengthy, some not so lengthy, and this star over Bethlehem could have been, in my humble opinion, an angel. Perhaps Gabriel. Gabriel, who appeared to Mary, announcing the birth of Jesus, Gabriel seems to be the angel in charge of Jesus' birth. He was there even for John the Baptist, Father Zacharias. He was visited, the forerunner was visited by Gabriel. And he announces to Zacharias, I am Gabriel, who was sent to you, who stands in the presence of God. So in my simplistic thinking, in mine, this Bethlehem star could have been Gabriel, just appearing in a glorious form as a star right over the very house of Mary and Joseph. I don't think that some comet came zooming by. I've heard that there was perhaps a supernova that exploded right over Beth. Well, that would have blinded people for miles around. So for me, Gabriel seems to be the guiding star that was there over Bethlehem. Now, that is not doctrine. That's my opinion. <laughs> Let me just say, but to me, that makes sense. Lori has a different opinion, my wife. You've seen these Christmas cards that have a big star on it, and there's one leg of that star that comes down and points to Bethlehem. That's what Lori believes. <laughs> and her, her belief is probably as good as mine. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But once the wise men find the young child along with Mary, they have a reaction. And they've been traveling for several years, and they fall down and worship Jesus. They worship these grown men, worship a baby. Man of, they're men of renown. They're men of wealth. And they've been seeking this baby. And when they see him, here again, I think Gabriel had his hand in them, guiding them there. They instantly worship Jesus. And these wise men, they start a Christmas tradition. Giving of gifts. 
you get any gifts this Christmas? Have you given any gifts this Christmas? That custom is still practiced in some parts of the world today. I'm going to see my grandkids this afternoon. I'll be giving gifts. <laughs> but uh, I heard a cute little thing from a fellow grandpa who has a practice. He wraps up empty boxes for his grandkids. And when they come over to his house and when they've been acting naughty, he will grab one of these empty wrapped boxes and throw it in the fire. And he tells his grandkids, there went one of your presents. <laughs> now that's cruel, but I thought it was funny. <laughs> he got their attention. <laughs> Perhaps too cruel, but anyway. The wise men, they bring gifts to Jesus. And this is, their giving of gifts is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. They're not just bowing down before Jesus. They're now giving to Jesus. An act of worship. And it is these expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that will support Joseph and Mary as they go down into Egypt. It's their livelihood. And then when they come back into the Galilee area. But these wise men, they give expensive gifts as an act of worship. And as we give gifts to our children primarily, you know, it's, it's so exciting to see them get, you know, so joyful and excited about opening a present. But the wise men are there worshiping. They're worshiping. And their worship costs them something first it costs them time they're probably two years away from home it has cost them two years there two years back four years of their life to seek out this king that has been born uh, and it's it's a worship of cost it's been said in the psalms if uh, if you're giving doesn't cost you something, then it's really not a gift. How true. How true. In the past, Lori and I have given through mission groups to needy families. We've given things like baby goats, you know, a little flock of chickens, uh, warm blankets for those in cold climates and that kind. And we have done that in honor of our grandkids. Now, we still give our grandkids gifts, but we also want them to uh, see that gifts can go and actually help people, not just be something to play with. Every winter, every Christmas, we receive a goodie box from a former neighbor we had in California. They were farmers, and they were quite well off. But we get in this, in this goodie box, we get some almonds, some walnuts, some dried apricots, and this kind of thing. And they also included this in there, a little note. We gave a needy family a pair of goats 
in honor of you. And that's one of our best gifts. That's one of our best gifts. Giving to a needy family because we have plenty is honoring our Lord and King. And it's worship. It's worship. Here at Calvary, we give people opportunities to worship. Our worship team gets here at least an hour before everybody else does, and they are worshiping as they practice for the service. That's an act of worship. True worship is more than saying hallelujah or singing a Christmas carol, which we all enjoy. Worship is practicing those songs before they present them to the rest of us. Worship can be doing a, a study time before a Bible study. Worship can be teaching a children's class and being prepared to teach that children's class. Or worship can simply be giving to someone who's in need. And it doesn't go unnoticed by our Lord. And yet here we are on Christmas Day and many churches around us, they're closed. They're not even open today. Not even open to worship. So allow me to declare to all who take time to truly worship, whether here or while traveling, maybe even at grandma's house, <laughs> your worship does not go unnoticed by the Lord. The wise men worshiped, and it's recorded in history that they worshiped. Our worship can be of the smallest, simplest of things, or it can be big and grandiose. But all worship, all true worship, is recognized by our Lord and King. Amen? Amen. So let's continue our worship as, uh, as the worship team comes forward. But let me pray. Let me get you to stand and we'll pray. Father God, I pray that you would teach us what is pleasing to you in worship. The wise men, they gave up four years of their life to come and worship a baby. Herod couldn't even go on a five-mile walk, one afternoon walk to worship. But the wise men are recognized that they worshiped you, Jesus, and I know that brings you honor and glory. We want to be a people, Lord, who are quick to worship. So, Lord, receive our praise. Receive our thanksgiving. Receive our worship. And may we give of our time and may we give of our monies in worship. May it not just be a, a word thing, but let it be an act of worship in our lives. 
as we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Help us to just learn to worship. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Now, here we are.